At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Well, good morning. You guys feeling rested today? (laughs) Well, it's good to see you here. I want to make a statement that you guys are going to acknowledge and agree with. In the week ahead, one political party will win our presidential election. Guys agree with that? Okay. While the Green Party and the Libertarian candidates are also on the ballot, most of us can acknowledge that the winner will likely be from the Republican Party or from the Democrat Party. Now, the question that we have to wrestle with in our culture today is this. How will the losing party handle the aftermath? How will the losing party handle that? Now, let me bring this a little bit closer to home. How will you handle that if your candidate, your party does not win on Tuesday? It's a fair question, isn't it? It's a question that we should be considering in our minds and discussing in our homes. I want you to know a good friend of mine posted this on social media uh, over the weekend, and I find it interesting. He says, you know what I'm going to do on the day after the election? If my candidate loses, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to love others. And if he wins, I'll do the same thing. Some of you might be offended right now. Some of you might say, Pastor, that is way too flippant. That is way too callous. That doesn't understand the significance and the importance of this particular election. Well, I want you to know that my friend cares deeply about who wins. My friend cares deeply about the issues of our time. In fact, his career is based upon righting the wrongs of our society. And yet, he posted that. Now, many of you might see that post as controversial. I want to submit to you this morning that we need to look at it a different way. I would suggests that we make a different evaluation. You see, his social media post is actually declaring a truth that can be found in Scripture, and it is this, that God's people, believers, are called to be good citizens. God's people, those of us who have a faith in Jesus Christ, you and I are called to be good citizens. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's a lot easier said than done right now. I mean, if you turn on the news, you walk down the street, you connect on social media, it's toxic right now. There's a lot of angst, there's a lot of tension in our nation leading up to Tuesday's election, and it is absolutely critical that you and I consider what the Apostle Peter is going to teach us today. Because what he's going to call us to is to be respectful, to live lives that are submissive in a culture that 
doesn't reflect our values and does not reflect our worldview in many different instances. Now again, I know that some of you, by what I just said, the blood pressure is beginning to rise a little. You're struggling with this because it is such a significant thing in our culture, and I don't want to dismiss that at all. But I do want us to have a godly perspective on this. I do want us to evaluate what's happening in our culture according to the Word of God. And we're going to turn there in just a minute, but before we do, let's pray together. Gracious God, we cry out to you in the midst of a culture that seems to be turning in on itself. We cry out to you as a sovereign Lord, as one who is in control, and we acknowledge that what's happening in our world does not take you by surprise, that you are still in control even in the midst of the chaos that we see, whether it's from a pandemic or it's from a political culture, whatever it is, God, in the midst of the chaos of our world, we ask for your peace. God, we cry out for it because we need it as your people. We need to be a people of peace in our culture. But it's so hard, God. We acknowledge today that our country is in need of you. We need more of you, not less of you. We need you to work in the hearts and the minds of believers to be good citizens, to be upright citizens, to love well. So in this difficult time, God, we turn to your word. We acknowledge that your word is true, it is truth, and it has everything we need to walk out our faith this week and in the days ahead. So God, give us eyes to see the truth of your word today. Give us ears to hear this truth and then the courage and the boldness that it is going to take us to live out this truth through the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue our look at the Apostle Peter's first letter, that's where we've been the last few weeks in our Unshakable series, and it is important for us to recognize once again that Christians have long been viewed as outcasts in society. I know some of us may be feeling that a little bit extra right now, and yet the reality is this is not a 21st century phenomenon. That's the cultural backdrop for what First Peter is written to. It's a challenge, really, for a group of believers living in exile amidst really difficult circumstances. So let's grab our Bibles. Let's turn there together. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter. Uh, We're going to be turning to chapter 2 and pick it up at verse 13. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Here's what Peter writes. Be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whatever, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, 
that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. There you have it. Everything that Peter writes in that little portion of Scripture would seem plausible in a culture that was filled with respect and with dignity, wouldn't it? I mean, that's not that hard to acknowledge in a culture that people respect each other, love each other, care for each other. That seems pretty easy to do. There's a foundation of a respect for authority. It seems pretty normal. Until you really dig a little bit deeper and you understand what Peter is asking. So often when I stand on the stage, I tell you context is absolutely critical for our understanding. Here's some context. Most scholars believe that Peter's first letter was written around 62 or 63 A.D. You'd say, well, that's great. That means it was likely sent from Rome during the time of a Roman emperor named Nero. Also great. Now, here's what's true. If you're not familiar with Nero, this is a guy whose resume includes tyranny, debauchery, and extravagance. Oh, and he had this other little characteristic too. He hated Christians. His hatred ran so deep, in fact, that he would host garden parties and he would burn Christians at the stake at those parties. That's the cultural narrative that Peter is addressing. It is into that culture, that's what's happening in the world, and in the midst of that we read Peter's words. Changes everything. It's a highly politicized culture, one that was strongly opposed to Christianity, and yet Peter writes the words in verses 13 and 14. Listen to it again. Be subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish, wait, those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter starts up by exhorting Christ's followers to take a posture of humility, to take a posture of submission when it comes to leaders within the public square, specifically to governmental leaders. It's this bold declaration that he makes when he says, believer, I want you to submit to their leadership. The emperor as supreme or the governors who are sent by him, I want you to submit to their leadership. Church, this is a staggering charge. This is not something that if you got this letter initially, you would read it and go, oh, okay. This is bold. Nero is in charge. He hates Christians. And yet, that is the very man that Peter is challenging believers to submit to his authority. Church, this gives us the first 
of three very intentional and very specific practices that we are going to find from Peter today for followers of Christ. Followers of Jesus, for the sake of God, are called to submit to our rulers. Believers are called to submit to our rulers. Now, the obvious question is, well, why? Why do I have to do that? You're telling me that Peter said that he should submit to an evil, tyrannical ruler. The answer is yes. Verse 13. It's a little phrase right there. It says, for the Lord's sake. That's why we do that. You see, when we submit, it goes beyond our local, it goes beyond our state, and it goes even beyond our national government context. Our submission is unto the Lord Himself. We demonstrate our allegiance and our alignment with God when we obey the governmental leaders that God has put in place, that God has established, whether we like them or not. That's verse 13. Then we get to verse 14, and it says another little phrase. It says, sent by him. This means that it is an act of common grace. It is God's grace to you and to me and to our world about those he puts in authority. Now, he doesn't put them in authority to punish us, but instead to keep order for the masses. That's what the government is there to do. Now, before we move away from any of these ideas, I want you to know that I know that the weight of this, I know the significance of this, and I know some of you are really struggling with what's being taught right now, and I get that. It's somewhat controversial. But I want you to know that this is not just taking one little perspective, this one little snippet in 1 Peter that does not connect with the rest of the Scriptures. Peter is not the only one to give us this counsel. The Apostle Paul, he also addressed the issue of governing rulers who guide us and help us in the midst of our own depravity. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. They're there to protect us against the bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Some of us might view those passages that we just looked at from 1 Peter and this other one from Paul as he writes to the Romans, and we might say that's controversial. I want to challenge that thinking this morning. It's really not. Because both of the apostles are giving us the words that God wants for us, his people. Because he is asking us to submit to our governing authorities, not for your sake, not for mine, for God's sake for God's sake. 
Let me bring this a little closer to home. If you say, well, I don't see it that way, I'm going to challenge that for just a minute. I'm going to give you a different take. If you are a parent, you understand and know exactly what we're talking about right here. This is not some stretch for those of us who are parents. You see, if you have some opportunity to send your child to school, perhaps it's even bringing them to the church and entering them into our kids' ministry. You go and you send the child off, and then you leave. What's your hope? They'll run rampant through that place, tear it up, disrespect everyone. (laughs) No. We desire that those who represent us would submit to leadership, don't we? We desire that our child would walk in the ways of the teacher, would follow the teacher's leading, would submit to the leadership of the principal. Why? Because it's a reflection on us. It's a reflection on us if they don't walk in submission to leadership. So it is with Christ followers who refuse to follow the lead of those that God has put in place. Now, Before we go any further, I can already hear some of the questions. Pastor, what am I supposed to do when everything that the government tells me goes against Scripture? Don't do it. What I'm challenging us with is that we have to submit to what the Scriptures teach. We're never asked to violate the truth of what Scripture teaches. We are held to that standard. But we should always have a heart posture of humility and respect for those who are in authority. God placed them there. You know what happens when we do? When we do, we glorify our God. When we submit and when our lives model this, we glorify our God above politics. And that's what we're called to do. Now let's return to our text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. We're going to see our second practice in this text. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, how many of us have ever asked that question? I, I don't know the will of God. What is the will of God? I need to know the will of God. Well, it's spelled out right here for us in First Peter, that your actions that your conduct, that your reputation, we talked about this last week, is marked by doing so much good. By doing such good that others can bring nothing against you. They have no argument. They can bring nothing against you. I hope that sounds familiar. I hope when I say that, that sounds familiar because that is exactly what we looked at a few verses earlier in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles so honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your what? Your arguments? Your attitude? No. Your good deeds. And they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, if you want to do the will of God, 
You and I are invited to walk in his ways, to walk in the ways of Scripture. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus guides us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now remember, when we talk about this text, Peter is writing to a group of believers who have been in exile, and they again are in a culture that is anything but Christian. It is not at all Christian. And yet after the exhortation, what we find is the responsibility for men and women and children who are followers of Christ to walk in God's ways that our character might speak far louder than anything we say or anything we, we post on social media. Our character must speak so loudly as we walk in the will of God. But this leads us to an obvious question, doesn't it? What is the good I'm supposed to do? I mean, what is the good that I'm supposed to do? You just said I'm supposed to do good. What's the good? Well, obviously the good is you're supposed to serve in kids' ministry and student ministries. That's the good. Just ask our next-gen team. They would love for you to step inside their ministry spaces and serve them. You see, the calling we have is to invest our lives in such a way as we make our society better. You and I are called to live in such a way that we improve the common good of our culture. Many of you may remember that it was during the COVID season that we partnered as a church with the American Red Cross. And we hosted multiple blood drives at our campus. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there was a massive shortage of blood in our region. And so we said we want to do something about that. So we reached out to the American Red Cross. And at the end of the blood drives that we hosted, our campus secured 180 units. You might say, well, what does that mean? That means about 540 lives were impacted because we sought to do good. Not for my glory, not for Pastor Ben's glory, not for our team's glory, not for the people who served, and not even for the people who gave. We desire to do good to honor God by helping improve our community. That's why we do those things. It's for the common good that Christians should walk in the ways of the Scriptures. In her book, Confronting Christianity, a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin writes, By the fourth century, Christians had invented hospitals, established welfare systems, and cared for the needy. As Christianity spread, so did concern for the least. We have a long history of making a difference in our world. And church, that gives us our second practice today. That for the sake of God, followers of Christ are called to do good. You and I are called, we are invited into doing good. And I want you to know that's why so many of us on our team were really encouraged a couple weeks ago when we stood on the stage and we said, hey, we're going to be having Thanksgiving boxes and we want you to take those boxes. We got a hundred boxes, not sure about how that would go over. Not as many people in the building as we have had in the past due to COVID and restrictions and that sort of thing. And so we didn't really know, but we got 100 boxes and they were gone by the end of the day. 
that's doing good. Now, you've got to fill those boxes, of course. Just taking a box, <laughs> taking a box doesn't quite get us across the finish line. But that's why we do those things. But here's the thing. It's not just a one-time opportunity. This is not just a one-time opportunity. The call is for this to be our lifestyle. You and I are to be committed to loving and caring for a whole group of people. I want you to buckle up and listen to the list I'm going to go down here. We're called to care for the unborn. We are called to care for the poor. We are called to care for the abused. We are called to care for the trafficked. We are called to care for the oppressed. We're called to do good for those people. That's what the church is about. When the church does good, you and I are filling the will of God. We're fulfilling it in practical terms. Oftentimes, I speak to our team and to our staff about our faith being kind of three-pronged. We live it out with our head, we live it out with our heart, and we live it out with our hands. This is that tangible expression where we live out our faith with our hands and with our feet to do good, to honor God, and to fulfill His will. Now, let's take a closer look at the final portion of today's text, those last two verses, verses 16 and 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living instead as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And honor the emperor. Hmm. Peter has just given us a guide for how believers are called to live as people who are free. As men, women, and children who are free. Now, many of us, we will take a look at this text through the lens of what it means to be an American. We'll view this text through the lens of politics. And while I am thankful for the freedoms we have in our country, I don't want to make any statement that would suggest otherwise. But the reality is that's not what Peter's getting at here. He's not speaking of a nationalistic freedom. What Peter is teaching us is far bigger. It is far more significant than any nationalistic freedom because he's speaking to what believers have in Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, the man who died on a cross for you to save you from your sin, that's what he's talking about. You have freedom from sin. You have freedom from the law. You are free from death. You are free to serve God. Not to earn His favor, but from His favor. You and I are free to serve God from that position of favor under God's grace. And this provides us the third practice that followers of Christ are called to. For the sake of freedom, followers of Christ should live to serve. You and I are called to live to serve. Now, Peter closes out our text with three, four powerful phrases that give life, that give action, that give a little power and energy to what he has just told us. So, I'm going to unpack a few of those. First, it says, honor everyone. 
The admonition here is to place a high value on everyone. Those who look different, those who think different, wait for it, those who vote different. You and I are called to honor them as Christ's followers. It does not mean we have to agree with them, but we are called to honor them. The next phrase, love the brotherhood. We are to have a special place in our hearts for the family of God, for those who are in Christ today. Here it comes again. We're called to love the brotherhood even when they differ theologically than we do, even when they differ in their practices, even when they differ denominationally. You see, as the family, we are called to serve one another. I love the way Francis Schaeffer puts this. He says, loving our brothers, even when it costs us something. Love the brotherhood. Then the last one is honor the emperor. That when you and I serve, it means we are to serve with our tongues. We are to speak well of the leader whom God has established. I know that is incredibly hard, but we are called to be respectful of those who God puts in place. No matter what level we're speaking of, that's what God asks of us. Oh, I know in this season that is perhaps among the biggest challenges we face. No matter your political party, I've heard both. (laughs) But with the general election upon us, You and I are called to be reminded that believers are more than a voting block. We are invited into the very work of God that He is doing to transform our world with the truth of the gospel. That's what you and I are invited into. And He is doing that transformation through us when we submit to our rulers, when we do good. And when we serve others with the love of Jesus, may we be a people. May you and I be a people who can faithfully do this. Even if our candidate or our party loses on Tuesday. Because our call, our call as the people of God is to be good citizens for God's glory. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.